Today on Inside the Box, we're excited to have with us as a guest one of the most influential figures in U.S. television broadcasting history. Newton Minow may be best remembered for delivering the famous Vast Wasteland speech at the National Association of Broadcasters Convention back in 1961. However, as we will learn today, he has dedicated his life to best serving the public interest of television viewers. Newton Minow, next on... The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Anyone who is in the broadcasting business has a tough road to hoe. You earn your bread by using public property. When you work in broadcasting, you volunteer for public service, public pressure, and public regulation. You must compete with other attractions and other investments. And the only way you can do it is to prove to us every three years that you should have been in business in the first place. I can think of easier ways to make a living, but I cannot think of more satisfying ways. Hello out there in podcast land, and welcome to this special episode of Inside the Box. I'm Andrew Salvati, and as befitting a special episode, we have a full ship's compliment today. Jonathan Bullinger, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm happy to be here, and I think Steve's excited as well. Steve? Yeah, uh, very much excited to be here and to speak with Mr. Minnow today. Um, We're really looking forward to it. Yeah, so a very special episode today. You know, as a historian, much of my own research derives from printed sources, whether it's books or periodicals, occasionally audiovisual media. But it's always more informative and much more fun when you can talk to someone who actually lived through momentous historical events, and especially when that person was so intimately involved in crafting policy at the highest levels and is generally an interesting and outspoken person as Mr. Minow. So... Without further ado, we're delighted to have with us through the magic of the internet, Newton N. Minow, attorney and former head of the Federal Communication Commission under President Kennedy. Mr. Minow, welcome to the program. How are you today, sir? I'm fine. I was very thrilled yesterday here in Chicago. The PBS annual meeting was here representing 350 public television stations, and they gave me an award called the Be More Award, which thrilled me to see how public television has developed through the years. Oh, congratulations. And yeah, you've been a huge part of that history over the years, something that we'll talk about uh, today in just a little bit. Um, Now, as you may know, a few months back, we here at Inside the Box devoted an episode to discussing your famous Vast Wasteland speech, or infamous Vast Wasteland speech, which you delivered before the annual meeting of the National Association of Broadcasters in May 1961. And I want to talk about that moment a bit later in the show, but you've had such a distinguished career since leaving the FCC in 1963 that I just want to get to for just a moment. As an attorney, you've remained involved in communication industry practices and policy uh, right up to the present. You worked for the National Educational Television and its successor, PBS, who, as you've just mentioned, uh, awarded you the Be More Award just recently. Uh, You were chairman there at PBS for a time. You've been on the boards of a number of different companies. You were the chairman of the RAND Corporation. You've been the Wall 
Walter Annenberg, Professor of Communications Law and Policy at Northwestern. Tremendous accomplishments. You've also authored four books, which I know the three of us could only hope to say that we've accomplished at some point. Um, But I want to start our time today by talking more about the present and with your involvement with the Commission on Presidential Debates, which seems apropos now in the spring of an election year. Well, the Kennedy-Nixon debate in 1960 was how it all really started, because um, my then law partner, Adlai Stevenson, who had been the Democratic candidate for president in 1952 and 56, he had uh, called for a series of debates by the presidential candidates. And as a result, Congress changed the law to amend the equal time law, that's section 315 of the Communications Act, to exempt debates for the 1960 presidential election only. And that led the broadcast networks at that time, there were only two and a half, uh, CBS, NBC, and ABC, to uh, sponsor or organize the debates. There were no debates in 64, 68, or 72 because the law didn't change. But in 76, without Congress, the FCC changed its interpretation of the equal time law and it created an exemption for debates provided they were organized by someone other than the broadcast licensee. So the League of Women Voters stepped into it, asked me to help them develop the debates, which I did and acted as co-chairman in 76 and 80 and 84. Then um, things had gotten kind of tense between the League and the candidates and the, the uh, Commission on Presidential Debates, which is a nonpartisan uh, group of citizens, uh, non-governmental, was organized, and they have sponsored the debates ever since. I'm the vice chairman of that commission, and we look forward to the 2016 debates this year. And that's exactly something that I wanted to uh, follow up with. Um, in 2008, you authored or co-authored a book with Craig LeMay, uh, Inside the Presidential Debates, which I'd recommend to all of our listeners. Uh, but you recommended uh, five or six uh, changes uh, to or recommendations for the future uh, concerning televised debates, including that the debate should be less formal, that the existing broadcast networks provide public service time to presidential candidates, that sh- there should be greater inclusion of third-party candidates, and a number of others. And I was wondering now in 2016, has there been any movement by the CPD or the networks or Congress on any of these issues that you recommended in 2008? Um, Or do you see any of them more outstanding now in light of uh, Citizens United? Uh, There have been some changes, and I think they've all been for the good of the country. Uh, Inside my book, I've just notified last week by the University of Chicago Press, they're going to reissue it in paperback form this summer, uh, which is good news. Um, The commission is um, kept pretty much the same criteria. In order to be invited to participate, a uh, candidate has to uh, be constitutionally qualified, has to be on enough state ballots so that numerically the candidate could conceivably win the election. 
And third, has to have indicated support of at least 15% of the five leading national public opinion polls. Uh, we have not made that determination until shortly before the debates occur, which is in September. We've announced the dates and the places of all the universities in the north, south, midwest, and west of the United States. So we look forward to having the debates in 2016. If there is a third party or a fourth party candidate who is eligible under the criteria, they'll be invited as well. Good. Yeah. So I imagine, you know, it seems to be that this election cycle um, revolution, for lack of a better word, has been a has been a byword. Uh, so I wonder if we'll see uh, third party candidates. You've also got a number of parties um, like the Libertarian Party, for example, and others uh, who uh, will put up candidates There are always uh, candidates beyond the two major parties uh, who are running. Right. Right. Um, so I want to go back a little bit um, to your work with the Adelaide Stevenson campaign. Um, for many decades, certainly in my lifetime, televised presidential debates have been a given, a quadrennial tradition. Uh, but this wasn't always the case. The television medium was about 15 years old before the first presidential debates were televised. And for 16 years after the famous 1960 Kennedy-Nixon contest, there were no debates for reasons that you've already stated. Uh, now, the columnist Jonathan Alter has called you, Mr. Minow, the father of televised presidential debates for your early advocacy and discussions you had with uh, Governor Stevenson about uh, the possibility of televised debate. So I'm wondering, um, can you take us back to your conversations with him? Uh, what was your pitch? Well, in 1956, um, President Eisenhower, the incumbent president, had suffered a bad heart attack. And um, I suggested to Adlai Stevenson, the Democratic uh, candidate, that in light of that, uh, it would be better for the country if um, President Eisenhower didn't have to run around like he's running for sheriff at uh, shopping centers and everywhere else in the country in the campaign. And that with the advent of the great uh, technological advance with television and radio, it would be possible to have all the American voters informed through the medium of uh, television and radio and uh, suggested that uh, President, that uh, Adley ought to propose that. Um, it, that Adley and his advisors decided against it. They thought it would be gimmicky and then Vienna didn't happen. But before the 60 election, Adley wrote an article in This Week magazine proposing this idea that attracted the attention of uh, the Congress, led to hearings in which Adley participated. I was the junior lawyer in our law firm drafted the first draft of his testimony. And the result was the exemption that I mentioned earlier for the 60 presidential debates. My college roommate, Sandy Van Oker, who was the NBC White House correspondent at the time, is the only living participant in the debates at that time. Everyone else has, has died. And uh, that set a high standard. President Kennedy had said to me on more than one occasion that he believed 
I think correctly, he believed he would not have won the election without the debates, and the debates became part of political history. Yeah, now is a part of political history that we all well remember. It's almost become legend at this point. You mentioned in your book uh, a few uh, criticisms of the debate at the time. It wasn't everywhere well received. Is that correct? Well, yes and no. I think um, when you look back and if you read the text or, or watch it, uh, the issues were really, uh, many of them were, were of, of trivial importance. They were arguing about two islands off the coast of China, which had no real uh, important significance to the United States. Uh, but they did give you an insight into the character personality of the candidates that was very important at that time. The country knew Vice President Nixon, he had been Vice President for eight years, but they really didn't know Jack Kennedy. Uh, and uh, through the medium of television, particularly, as, as well as radio, the country got to know him, and that was uh, very, very important. Mr. Minow, I'd like to jump in and just uh, ask you a question. With that being said, and when you became commissioner, news was only 15 minutes long. How has that changed now with a 24-hour news cycle where you have pundits, you have uh, news stations, um, plethora of to choose from, uh, that we have so much news now? Where do you find the television debates now sort of fitting within the fabric of, of our television news? Well, I, I've thought a great deal about this. I think there are uh, mixed uh, opinions. Uh, certainly, I believe the more news, the better. The more opportunity that uh, we have to uh, get the news, the better. At the same time, some of the cable news particularly has become so uh, com combining news and opinion, uh, news and entertainment, uh, that um, uh, I think that that's a risk. In the early days of television, where there were so few channels, there was one great unifying factor in the United States. That is, families watched the same programs at the same time. Grandparents, parents, children shared a common simultaneous experience. Today, uh, there's one television set being watched by the children, another by the parents, uh, another by the rest of the families throughout the country. We're seeing different things and not sharing a common experience. So there are pluses and minuses. My own view is I think the principal goal I had at the, my time at the FCC was to expand and enlarge choice for the viewer, to put the viewer more in charge rather than the broadcaster. And we've certainly done that through public television, through cable television, through satellite television, all forms of, of pay television, all forms of choice now for the viewer. I think that's preferable, but there are also great risks in people not sharing that same common unifying experience. Right. There's a, just a plethora of choice for everyone and on different devices as well. I can certainly see how that um, has pros and cons on both sides because you want to give the choice, but at the same time, um, everyone can kind of get into their silos where they're kind of in their own bubble, right? And they're not seeing 
all the sides. Um, in, in a documentary I recently watched, your, your children particularly commented that at the dinner table, uh, you would give them sides to play in, in sort of a court case, and it was very beneficial for them to see all sides of everything um, so that they could appreciate their own side and understand it better. And um, today, do you think that, that that's not really happening as much now because of the silos of the 24-hour news cycle in cable TV? I think that is a serious risk. I think the one place where you know you're going to get all sides is on public uh, television, Mm -hmm. uh, which is picked every year as the by the American people as the most trusted institution in the United States, uh, which provides all sides, I think, in a very balanced way. Unfortunately, that's not always true with some of the cable news operations. I just wanted to follow up on something that Steve said. Um, I think some might blame uh, the emergence of our shrill political discourse on the suspension of the fairness doctrine. I was wondering if you saw it the same way. For those who don't know about the fairness doctrine, the fairness doctrine was developed by the FCC many years ago. and It basically said to a broadcast licensee, radio and television, you should, number one, you should deal with controversial issues, but you should present all sides of that controversial issue, not necessarily the same program, but over a period of time, all sides should be heard. There was always a risk with the fairness doctrine of the First Amendment uh, being endangered because the government would be policing uh, different uh, opinions of different licensees. In time, the FCC gave up the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, I was always in favor of the Fairness Doctrine, but I think I understand the other side very well. So the Fairness Doctrine was abandoned, and that has led to a broadcaster or a cable operator feeling free to present only one side. Uh, and that would be okay if people were watching other stations and getting other sides. But that isn't always true, and that's, that's the risk. Is it my understanding correct, though, that the FCC wouldn't necessarily have power over the cable entities if the Fairness Doctrine uh, did still exist because the FCC was really meant to regulate broadcast networks and stations and, and that cable because Americans are paying for that service that, um, that, that the FCC wouldn't exactly have the power even if the Fairness Doctrine was still um, intact today? Well, that's true. Uh, the, um, however, however, it's not entirely true. Cable uh, is still required under the Equal Time Law to give equal time to candidates and a couple other things. So, yes, cable is a lot freer than broadcast television, but it is still subject to the equal time law. Uh, just to shift gears a little bit, I'm a, I'm a historian, uh, so I kind of always want to get back to talking about the past. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us about how you first met Robert Kennedy. Well, I will. Um, Bob Kennedy was assigned by the Kennedy family to become part of the staff of Adlai Stevenson's 1956 campaign. Uh, actually, I knew Jack before I knew Bob, but the family wanted uh, Bob to learn about national campaigns. 
So he became part of the Stevenson staff. Because Bob and I are roughly the same age, we're only a few months apart, <clears throat> we often ended up traveling together. Sometimes we were roommates on the campaign trail, and we got to know each other very well. Uh, we have children, I have three children, we're the same age as three of Bob's children, and um, we had a very serious conversation in Springfield, Illinois, in the 56 campaign, when Adley went to Springfield to give a speech, and we got off the plane, and Bob said to me, you and I have heard the stump speech of Adley 500 times. Uh, do you think we have time? How far is Lincoln's home from here? And uh, we were in downtown Springfield, right near the uh, state government headquarters. I said, it's an easy walk, Bob. We can get back and forth uh, before the speech and the event is finished. So the two of us walked over to Lincoln's house. And on the way back, we started talking for some reason uh, and television came up and Bob said to me, he said, Newt, he said, uh, when I was a child, there were three great influences on children, the home, the school, and the church. He said, now with my kids, I see there's a fourth, it's television. My kids are spending more time with television than I can believe. And I said, Bob, I said, I read a study that showed that children are spending more time with television than they are in school. Well, that interested, that led to our discussion um, four years later when the Kennedys asked me to become chairman of the FCC. It was because they cared about improving television. I cared about improving television. That's the only job I would have taken in the government at the time. And um, that's my history with Bob, and we became friends and stayed friends until he was murdered, sadly. Right. A very tragic event that, uh, unfortunately, we all know too well uh, still to this day. So today, uh, the influence might be uh, on children might be the smartphone, uh, and you and Robert Kennedy might have been talking about that rather than television. I I think you're right. I think the internet has changed everything, the smartphone, the digital technology, and I'm sure we'd be talking about that. And they shouldn't shut off this podcast if they're listening. I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> no. No, no. Um, so what was your interest in television and mass communication prior to this conversation with Kennedy, prior to becoming FCC chair? Well, I think the first time that I really saw the power of television was when I was in the Army in World War II. I was in the China-Burma-India theater, and once a week or so, my unit would get a movie which would be shown outdoors in the evening. And um, this was in India. And one day when the movie was over, the truck lights went on, and I saw Indians uh, hundreds, hundreds of Indians who had come from the countryside watching the film. They were, some of them were in the trees so they could get high, get high enough to see it. They were all over the place. And I realized the extraordinary power of the medium to, uh, to teach. And when I 
came home and later when television developed, I said to my mother and father, this is the most important invention, certainly since the nuclear bomb. And I realized its importance and I wanted to be involved with it somehow. And then what we got was Western bad men and Western good men, to quote from your from your famous speech. <laughs> yes, we also had we also had very good things, but we did not have uh, what I, particularly I was particularly upset about the poor programming for children who were spending so much time with the tube and getting very little out of it. That was constructive or educational or worthwhile. So so you found value in the device of television. So instead of limiting television's hours or limiting children's uh, exposure to the device, you were more about changing the content of television, saying, well, if the kids are going to watch this, let's make this worthwhile. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. I, I studied um, at the time uh, what had happened in other countries. In England, when television began, they started with a public service system, the BBC. Same thing was true in Canada. Same thing was true in Japan. Same thing was true in Germany and in France. Our country started with a commercial system and then tried to catch up a little bit, but weakly, with a public service system, which today is, is PBS and NPR. Um, when I went to the FCC, I went there from Chicago. President Kennedy went to the White House from Boston. We each came from a city that had a public television station. We assumed that other major cities had such stations. I was astonished to find there was no public station in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, none in New York, the nation's most important city. None in Los Angeles, the nation's fastest growing city, and none in many of the cities throughout the United States. So we determined to change that. We, I got really in, in the midst of three uh, battles in Congress, uh, which led to our current change, where we now have 350 public television stations. I told this to the PBS conference yesterday. First, we got a law passed that required that all, all television sets had to have a receiver that received UHF, while well, most of the, today's public television stations are UHF. Second, uh, we got um, the satellite uh, going, the communication satellite, which hooked all the stations together. And third, we got some federal funding for the first time to help construct public television stations. Those three things led over the last 55 years to what is currently, I'm very proud of, the current PBS system. We've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And I, I do think it's important to mention that you did all three of those things within your first year as commissioner. The first two years, I think. I was only there about two and a half years. In fact, President Kennedy uh, called me at home one night. He said, how in the blank did you do that? <laughs> and I said, I said uh, Mr. President, I said, I managed to keep out of any partisan politics. We work with the Democrats and the Republicans, and we get it done. 
Yeah, it's an amazing feat. That's the way it should be. Now, the Kennedy administration was famously focused on foreign affairs, and there were a number of Cold War flashpoints that demanded the administration's attention, Berlin, Cuba, Southeast Asia. I'm wondering whether Kennedy himself had a vision for communication policy during his administration that that he kind of directed you on. Did he have specific goals for the FCC in mind uh, prior to taking office, uh, or did you have a measure of autonomy in setting the agenda for your own administration? I had total autonomy. The, um, uh, the president was very pleased. In fact, he had a, a press conference at the end of his first year with the press asking him what he was most proud of in the first year, and he specifically called out what we were doing at the FCC. Uh, so he, he shared that. He knew how important it was. Uh, he defended me in a couple of press conferences where the broadcasters had uh, complained or criticized. Uh, the most important, the, actually the most dramatic experience I had with him involved the Cuban Missile Crisis, where I was called back. I was in New York talking to the European broadcasters about the communication satellite policy. I was called back to the White House and told about the missile crisis in Cuba and that the Voice of America radio signals were being jammed uh, by the Russians to uh, not to lot not let anybody in Cuba hear the voice of America. And I was asked to get a group of commercial radio stations, which had signals that reached Cuba to carry the voice of America. And we did that. It was a very exciting time. I was called to the White House the day after the president spoke to our nation. And the president said it worked. I think they must have had some CIA people or somebody in Cuba who reported back that it was widely heard in Cuba. And he said, let's keep doing this until this is over. And we kept doing that for a week. When it was all over, stations called me and said, um, where do we send the bill? We knocked out all our advertising to carry the voice of America. Oh, wow. I said, I don't, I said, I don't have any money to pay you. I called the White House and they said, I said, why, why doesn't the president invite these guys to lunch? thank them, I think they will then not insist on being reimbursed. Oh, that's funny. Which the president, and the president did, invited me. We all had lunch together at the White House. We never got a bill after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I imagine a lot of people think that the FCC chair is more of a domestic role, but you certainly had influence in foreign policy uh, during the Kennedy administration. Well, I went to one international conference. and In fact, this is interesting. It's the first time I met uh, Father Ted Hesper. He was also a delegate that later led, when I left the government, to my becoming a trustee of Notre Dame, the first Jewish trustee. But at that conference, the Russian delegate uh, called me aside, invited me to dinner, and he thought, because I was chairman of the FCC, he thought that I had some authority over the... Uh, Voice of America and um, the other international U.S. channels like Radio Free Europe and others. And he said, um, we try to block these. We don't want them coming into Russia. You should stop this. And I said uh, to him, I said, 
I have no authority on this, but I said, if I did, we would double them in size. Yeah. So he said, oh, I'm, going to, I'm going to forget talking about you. <laughs> uh, we, we, the, um, uh, I think it's very, in fact, I, I don't think to this day that the United States does as good a job as we should in carrying our message through international broadcasting, like the Voice of America and others, to other countries. I still don't think we do. I have proposed that we take one-tenth of one percent, one-tenth of one percent of our Pentagon spending and increase our international broadcasting. Uh, I get nowhere with that idea. What would you hope to achieve with that? What, what vision would you have if, if that did become reality? I would hope we'd become as important, for example, as the BBC International Service, which is heard all over the world and respected. And I would hope we would carry America's message of our democratic system uh, to uh, places all over the world. We do to a limited extent. I'm not saying we don't try, but I believe uh, uh, I believe uh, General Sarnoff, who was the head of NBC, once uh, said to me, he said, the voice of America is the whisper of America. So I understand that prior FCC chairs had what we might call more cozier relationships with the companies that they regulated or they were supposed to regulate. Can you describe something of the office as you inherited it? Uh, what were the expectations that, that you yourself had uh, when coming into the office about what you would get done? Did you imagine that you'd be able to get so much done in, in two years? When I came to the FCC, the FCC had suffered a uh, scandal. Uh, the broadcasting industry had suffered scandal. They'd had the rigged quiz, quiz shows uh, in the 50s. The President Eisenhower, President Kennedy's predecessor, had to fire the chairman of the FCC for being too cozy with uh, uh, some broadcasters. There have been some cases of bribery. The place was in ill repute. And uh, I knew it had to be straightened out. And I said so, but I also said to the broadcasters at that speech, that speech that became so well known, I said, I'm not going to argue the past. We're going to deal with the future. Right. Uh, but I also tell you that broadcast licenses are not going to be automatic, which scared the hell out of everybody. Uh, but I thought it was necessary. And I think the FCC restored its reputation uh, and the public became much more aware of it. Uh, I knew President Obama, who worked in our law firm with Michelle before, uh, long before he became president. And when the president was elected, uh, I had a visit with him, and I said, Mr. President, pay attention to the FCC. There's no agency, no agency that has a more intimate, daily, hourly, by minute contact with every citizen of the United States who makes a telephone call or sends an email or listens to the radio or watches television. All that, all that is at the FCC. It's, I think, one of the most important agencies in the government. 
So speaking of the speech, uh, I guess it's uh, about time that we get around to it. I'm wondering if you can tell us how the famous or infamous line uh, actually found its way into the speech. Well, I will. But first, I'll tell you, the president was speaking to the broadcasters, the National Association of Broadcasters, the day before I was to speak. And the first American astronaut had just returned from space safely was in the White House. The president's office called me and said the president wanted to have me accompany him, drive with him to the broadcaster's convention. So I was waiting outside the Oval Office. President Kennedy came out and he said, Newt, he said, what do you think about taking Admiral Shepard, that was the first American astronaut, and his wife to the broadcaster's convention. He said, I'm taking them to Congress, but we could go to the broadcaster's convention from there go to Congress. I said, that would be perfect, Mr. President. He said, well, let me work this out. He went back in his office. He came out. He said, okay, it's all set. But he said, in the meantime, I want to change my shirt. Come with me upstairs. He took me upstairs to the living quarters. He then proceeded to change his shirt. And he said to me, uh, what do you think I should say to the broadcasters? And even though I knew the president before he was elected, I was sort of intimidated. Here I was with the president changing his shirt. And I said, Mr. President, <laughs> you ought to uh, discuss the difference between our system in the United States and the Russians. And point out when the Russians send an astronaut into space, nobody knows about it. Whereas where we do it in the United States, we invite radio and television to cover it. Everybody participates. Everybody can share the common experience, the difference between a closed and an open society. The president didn't say anything, didn't say good, didn't say bad. We later went downstairs and we were getting, Ike was going to get in the second car because he now had the shepherds and the vice president came with us. And the president said, um, no, no, he said, and he said, Lyndon, he said, you, Lyndon, will get in the jump seats. I'll get in the back seat with Commander Shepard and his wife. We'll all go in one car. So we went in one car and we drove up to the uh, meeting and the president gave a speech for very brief. But he got up and he said, thank you for covering the astronauts launch into space, covered it live. He said, that's the difference between the United States and Russia. And he went into the difference between a closed society and an open society. Perfect speech, no notes. And he left. Everybody loved his speech. They didn't like mine the next day <laughs> because, because I kind of took them to task of uh, their failing to fully do their best to to serve the public interest, not the private interest. And um, when my speech was finished, uh, I was standing with uh, the head of the National Association of Broadcasters, former governor of Florida, Leroy Collins. man came up to us. He said, uh, Mr. Chairman, I didn't like your speech. And I said, well, thank you very much. <laughs> two, minutes, two minutes later, he came back and he said, I've been talking to people that was one of the lousiest speeches I've ever heard. Wow. I said, thank you. Goodbye. He left. Came back four minutes later and he said, 
I've now thought it over myself. That was the worst speech in the history of the United States. Wow. And uh, Governor, Collins, Governor Collins put his arm around me and he said, no, don't listen to him. He just repeats everything he hears. <laughs> so that, well, you know what? that was a reaction. I didn't realize that the speech would attract that much attention. When television is good, nothing, not the theater, not the magazines or newspapers, nothing is better. But when television is bad, nothing is worse. I invite each of you to sit down in front of your own television set when your station goes on the air and stay there for a day without a book, without a magazine, without a newspaper, without a profit and loss sheet or a rating book to distract you. Keep your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. I, I have to ask you, because I've heard the speech so many times, and we hear the audio recording of it. It sounds as though that they're laughing with you. Some of the jokes you might be saying, it was sort of lighthearted in the beginning. The, the room is laughing. But then as the speech progresses, you hear the broadcasters give out more nervous laughs, it seems. It seems like the temperature in the room started to drop. Did you feel any of that tension as you were giving that speech? Did you feel anything changing no. in the room? No, I didn't. Um, and I didn't realize... Uh, you know, more than 50 years later, that the uh, speech is still remembered. That's astonishing to me. So uh, I have a very serious question now to follow up with about the speech. Um, one of our uh, regular listeners has asked if indeed there was a television show in the late 1960s featuring a uh, crew of castaways on an island, <laughs> and he was wondering if the boat in that television show was indeed named after yourself. I'm talking, of course, yes, of Gilligan's absolutely. Island. It, it absolutely. Was. The producer and writer of that show was a man named Sherwood Schwartz, who didn't like my speech, <laughs> and he, he therefore named the boat that sank the SS Minnow, and I had a wonderful correspondence with him later, and we became friends, so sadly he's no longer uh, living, but uh, yes, the SS Minnow was named for me. What did you think when you first learned that? Um, did you know the connection immediately, or, or was it something that oh, you... Oh, yes, I heard about it immediately and, <laughs> and was in touch with him to thank him for making me well-known. <laughs> uh, so I want to ask you one more question about your tenure as FCC chair. Um, you were at the FCC during some crucial years of the civil rights movement, and uh, in your position, uh, in at least one case, uh, you increased the political visibility of African-Americans. Um, can you tell us about Reverend Smith? At that time, Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt was still alive. And um, she called me up one day and she said, why aren't you helping Reverend Smith? And I said, Mr. Roosevelt, I'm very sorry. I don't know what this is about. I, I, can you tell me? She said, uh, Reverend Smith is a black minister in Jackson, Mississippi, and he is running for Congress against uh, the incumbent. And he went to the local television station, WLBT, with a check asking to purchase some time on WLBT to advance his campaign. And he was told to come back next week. And this has gone on for five weeks. 
next week, next week, next week. Well, next week is the election. And he filed a complaint with the FCC, and the FCC has not answered. So that's why I'm calling you. So I immediately looked into it, and sure enough, on the desk of uh, the bowels of the agency somewhere was sitting Reverend Smith's complaint. And I said to our staff, what are you doing about this? And they said, well, the law requires that the candidates being treated equally. And we have checked with Reverend Smith's opponent, the Democratic incumbent in Congress, his name was John Bell Williams, and he is not purchasing any time. So we are treating them equally. I said, that is outrageous. So we sent a, that time we sent telegrams. We sent a telegram to the station. Station then sent its Washington lawyer to see me within a matter of hours. And um, he said, we'll put him on the air. I said, when? And uh, they said, uh, we're kind of vague. I said, put him on immediately because the election is next week. They put him on. He lost the election, but he was the first black candidate to be on television in that area. Later, there was a hearing in Congress where a member of Congress tried to give me a hard time. His name was John Bell Williams. He was on the Commerce Committee in the House. And I figured I'm not a career government person. I'm going to end this once and for all. So I said, Congressman Williams, I think the record ought to show what this is about. This was your race running against a black candidate, a minister. And he got up and walked out. Congress later clarified the law as well, guaranteeing that a candidate had a right to purchase time. I forgot about it. I went back to private life. And uh, some 30 years later, the Democratic Convention was in Chicago. And um, I was on the board of the Sara Lee Company at the time. And the chairman of Sara Lee was from Mississippi. And he had a breakfast for the Mississippi Democratic delegation invited me. And I came over and I was a delegation said was 100%, not 99%, 100% black. And I was shaking hands meeting the delegation and a man said, Minnow, 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 are you the Minnow that was chairman of the FCC? I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, I'm Aaron Henry. And I said, uh, Mr. Henry, I'm sorry, uh, tell me more about yourself. He says, you don't know who I am? I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Henry, I don't know who you are. He said, I'm Aaron Henry. He said, I was the campaign manager 30 years ago for Reverend Smith mm -hmm. in Jackson, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And I'm the one who called Mrs. Roosevelt, got Mrs. Roosevelt to call you. I'm the one that filed a complaint Reverend Smith at the FCC. I said, well, I'm very honored to meet you, Mr. Henry. I said, what do you do now? He said, what do I do now? He said, you don't know what I do now. I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Henry, I don't. He said, well, after you left the FCC, you know that the FCC took away the broadcast license for WLVT because they continued their discrimination policy. And the United Church of Christ came to Jackson 
and asked me to organize a black group to apply for the license. And we got the license, and we have the license today. And I, Aaron Henry, former campaign manager to Reverend LBT Smith, I am the chairman of WLBT. Hmm. That, and that's... I said to myself, by God, there's justice in the world. It it's takes a while, story. but yeah. it happened. It's really such a good story. And I guess, what does it feel like for you, all these decisions that you made years ago, you've been able to see the results of? Well, unfortunately, um, I'll be known the rest of my life, and I think thereafter, for this vast wasteland speech. Uh, I think the most important things I did at the FCC uh, were, were not the vast wasteland. Uh, it was really reminding broadcasters that they had public interest obligations, getting the UHF legislation, which broadened the choice for Americans and let hundreds of other people uh, operate television stations, uh, to get the satellite communications going. As I told President Kennedy at the time, satellite communications were more important, in my opinion, more important than sending a man into space because they sent ideas into space and ideas last longer than people. Mm -hmm. And third, getting some help to get public television off the ground, which has become, I think, an important American institution. Those are the things that I'm proud of. And um, I would hope that uh, uh, talking to you, uh, more people will know about them. Well, if uh, folks listen to this episode of Inside the Box, uh, they will certainly get an idea of the fullness of your legacy and um, get a greater appreciation of it. So uh, thank you very much for coming on the show and talking to us today, Mr. Minow. Uh, I think that's all the time that we have. And we, uh, we just again want to congratulate you on your recent PBS Be More Award. And it also sounds like uh, they'll be reissuing a paperback version of your Inside the Presidential Debates this summer. So it's uh, really shaping up to be a really wonderful year for you, sir. Well, thank you. Uh, I was 90 this year, and uh, at 90, I've been uh, luckily blessed with uh, most important my family. I've got my wife and I will celebrate our 67th wedding anniversary this month. I have three daughters, all doing good in the world, and uh, the daughter who put me in touch with you is a, a renowned shareholder activist and a movie critic. Another daughter is the dean of Harvard Law School. Uh, another daughter is a leading figure in the library world, was appointed by President Obama to the, the Federal Institute that gives money to museums and libraries. So we're very, very lucky. Thank you. So that concludes the time we had with Newton and Minow. Again, we thank him for joining us today for our discussion. And I have to say, uh, Andrew, I was really uh, happy to uh, to hear the questions that you had prepped uh, today, as well as Steve chiming in. Um, any sort of final thoughts or takeaways uh, from this wonderful discussion we've had? I think if you are a fan of television, especially television history, this is a figure that you, you have to know. He's had such an impact, as you can hear from 
um, all types of policy uh, and a lot of things behind the scenes. And even really, you know, we talk about the fairness doctrine and, and his intervention into how some of these policies have changed and uh, he gave rights to people that didn't have those rights before. Um, just it's so influential in so many ways that if you're a fan of television and you appreciate its history, uh, Newton Minow is a name that, that you really should take the time to know and to appreciate. Yeah, I mean, his participation in the civil rights movement as FCC chair, uh, his involvement in foreign affairs to some extent, I'm really glad that we're able to have such a, a robust discussion about not only his time as FCC chair, but uh, some of his, his opinions and perspectives about the media and broadcast industry uh, now, then, and even uh, before in the 1950s a bit too. So uh, really, really great discussion. And I was really happy to hear uh, we get the opportunity to talk to him about his involvement with the televised presidential debates over the years. I think that was really great. Yeah. So if you are interested in learning more about this topic, um, as we had mentioned, uh, his book on the presidential debates is being reissued later this year. Um, he also uh, is part of a recent documentary. We uh, also have a article, I believe, from the March issue of Broadcasting and Cable that features him prominently on the cover. Um, so lots more uh, material for you guys to go through, which we'll connect to on our website the best we can to investigate this uh, fascinating man who is uh, still uh, moving and shaking and shaping um, the way we understand television today. So that's all the time we have today on Inside the Box. We want to thank again our guest today, Newton Minow, joining us uh, from his law office in Chicago. Um, you might want to catch, and we'll link to this on the website, a great documentary produced by WTTW Chicago called Newton Minow, An American Story uh, with Mike Leonard. Uh, great documentary. Again, we will post it uh, as a link to tvhistorypod.com. So for myself, Andrew Salvati, Steve Voorhees, and Jonathan Bullinger, thank you for joining us today on a very special edition of Inside the Box. Is there one person in this room who claims that broadcasting can't do better? Well, a glance at next season's proposed programming can give us a little heart. Of 73 and a half hours of prime evening time, the networks have tentatively scheduled 59 hours of categories of action, adventure, situation, comedy, variety, quiz, and movies. Is there one network president in this room who claims he can't do better? Was there at least one network president who believes that the other networks can do better? Gentlemen, your trust accounting with your beneficiaries is long overdue. Never have so few owed so much to so many.